0: And bill show wish to thank our primary sponsors the Mallon agency located in springfield pa where they take pride in exceeding expectations every time
1: the roselli agency brian and his team of insurance professionals have been serving the needs of chester county for more than two decades
0: anthony dacheco and our friends at tennis addiction are ready to serve all your tennis needs at their beautiful facility in Exton, pa
2: They don't check kids under 12. They don't check older people over 75, but they check me every time I'm flying. Flew into New York yesterday. I'm coming from Atlanta. There's a kid in the line. He was Indian, Arab, Jungle Book. I couldn't tell what he was. (laughs) And he's wearing these shoes that the kids are wearing that are
1: blinking, but I'm the only one that noticed that the shoes are counting down. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rosie and Bill Show. Our guest this week had a dream of becoming a comedian. And luckily for us, he brought that dream to fruition. Please welcome to the Rosie and Bill Show an understated, relatable, and hilarious comic, Drew Thomas. Hi, Drew, thanks for coming on the show today.
2: Thanks for having me. (laughs) That was a wonderful introduction, I like that.
1: Why, thank you.
0: Well, when you have someone like you on, Drew, we want to make sure we do right by you. And my partner definitely did. And we've been looking forward to this for a while. And Drew, what we'd like to do is kind of start at the beginning or at least kind of roll the clock back, turn the clock back just a little bit. When when you were nine years old, your family moved from Kingston, Jamaica to the Bronx, New York. And I'm wondering what was that transition like and what are some of your early memories from living in the Bronx? Ooh, that was tough. I mean, first when I came, you have kids
2: making fun of you for how you talk. You know, you have an accent from another country. Some people didn't even know that Jamaica spoke English. So I had people asking me, oh, when do you learn English so fast? Where did you, when did you learn English? And I'm like, from the beginning, we were colonized by the British. Um, but it was it was a strange time because I was coming from, Private school to New York public school, you know. So, New York school system is different. You know, you, you're getting ripped for your clothes, you're getting ripped for the way you talk, the neighborhood that you live in. So, that was a tough transition. It, it takes a while when you come from an, another country to acclimate yourself. You, you're learning a new culture, you're learning new slang words, you're learning, you know, the way different kids interact, you know. So, it's a big change.
1: Yeah, I imagine that was quite a bit of a culture shock for you. Very, very. When you were young, when did this dream of doing comedy come come up for you?
2: Listening to Eddie Murphy. So around the sixth grade, I had a good friend of mine, Kyle Taylor, and we used to go to his house after school, and his stepdad had one of Eddie Murphy's albums, and we used to listen to it all the time, and I just... Laugh so much, man. And I just kept saying to myself, Man, I want to do this for a living. You can make people laugh for a living. I want to do that for a living. So the seed was planted from Eddie Murphy Hmm. that I could do this for a living.
1: And did your family think you were funny or did you think you were funny at that point? I didn't really know if I was funny, but my friends would tell me that I
2: was funny. And I used to make my brother and sister laugh. I'm the oldest of three. We're all three years apart. But you know, in a Caribbean house, entertainment isn't encouraged, so it's not like my parents were going to take me to a comedy club or take me to comedy shows. They're like, okay, you're funny, but you could be funny at being a nurse
0: or a math teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that's a common that's- theme with, with a lot of people that we've had on, Drew, that, you know, took the path that you took is, is not exactly one that generally goes over well with your parents, especially when
1: you're younger. no. Not at all, you got to keep it a secret, it's true. Yeah. Otherwise, someone's going to dash your dreams exactly,
2: and you can't let them because they're only you know really looking out for you and that they're, they're they're only basing it on what they know. No, they didn't come from a time where you just chose entertainment, so they're like, That sounds lofty to that generation, you know. So maybe you should go to school and get a good job so you can take care of yourself. They don't see it as oh, you're about to tell jokes and eat
0: yeah and it's it's something where i I think one of the earliest signs i think that you must have been pretty good at it was sometimes your siblings can be the toughest people to impress so if you had your brother and sister laughing you must have been doing something right even right that
2: was my first audience my mother
0: will admit to that like yeah you always kept your
2: brother and sister laughing so that was my first audience of two so i've I've performed
0: in front of crowds from two to thirty three hundred so Drew, if, if we fast forward a little bit, at one point you end up, you're in Atlanta selling cars. So I got a couple questions about that. First off, did having a sense of humor help you in selling cars? It did because it helped you to break the ice with customers. Couple Customers come
2: on the lot. They're defensive. They see a car salesman as a villain and I'm tall. I'm 6'4". So comedy or humor would help break the ice with bringing when when greeting people on the lot especially with couples because you're talking to the wife because you know the car is for her but the husband is the one buying it but he feels that you're giving his wife attention so you have to bring him in also and so it was it was i think that was the final stage of preparing me to be on stage was selling cars because i sold toyotas and i got to speak to everybody i mean toyota product ranges from a to sell to a land cruiser and that's a that's a wide range of customer.
1: It is. I used to do the auto shows for Toyota and they Oh had, wow. I might yeah. have
2: seen you at an auto show. <laughs>
1: well it was it was a while ago but I, I enjoyed it. I I got a Toyota after that because I really thought their product was was really good. But I'm curious having been a woman buying a car I feel like sometimes they don't take you as seriously as they take the man because you actually just said he's the one buying the car that is correct
2: usually in a couple situation but you would have single women who would come school teachers nurses other professions and that is true the car industry would think they don't know anything or especially in the service industry when women come in for service uh traditionally they pay more because they'll just tell them oh you need rotors and pads and new tires and she only needed an oil change but
0: (laughs) it's gonna do it yeah but that is but that that is true and and drew i can vouch for what you just said because in 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 one of my prior positions i spent about five years working in various dealerships in multiple states and that's where they made their money was in that service area and they bring out that that dirty air filter that's not even from your car right (laughs) And all of a sudden, your oil change becomes two thousand dollars in repairs. Exactly, <laughs> that <would> be right. <laughs> only you only got an oil
2: a oil change light came on, and now you're in here thirteen hundred dollars later
0: <laughs> with a new <laughs> flux <fine>. capacitor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody needs one of those. <laughs> well,
1: Drew, in two thousand and six, you were voted comedian of the year in Atlanta. Correct? Yes. And then after that, you you were touring like in 40 different states across the country. Can you share any fun or crazy stories that happened during that time?
2: I have a good story. So I'm doing a lot of colleges during that time. And I'm staying at a hotel one day. I had an extra day off. And I noticed that the housekeeper was from South America or Central America, somewhere there. And I just mentioned to her, I said, hey, I've been on the road for a couple of days and I keep having fast food and I haven't had a good meal. And she was like, oh, I'm from Dominican Republic. And I said, oh, that's close to Jamaica. The food is similar. You make rice and beans and chicken and plantains." And then she goes, yeah. And she goes, when do you leave? I go, oh, I'm here one more day. And this housekeeper went home and cooked all these things and brought it back to the hotel in her own personal dishes and left them at the front for me. And I, me and a buddy of mine that was traveling, we ate the food and I washed all her dishes and packed them back up and <laughs> left them back for her. And I was like, that is the nicest thing anybody has ever done in my 20 years of traveling.
1: Oh my God. I need to find
2: that lady, thank her. Yeah. Oh,
1: you didn't get to thank her?
2: I didn't get to thank her because the day
1: when she brought the food when I was leaving, she was off oh my gosh well what were you hoping for when you asked her all those questions did you want her to to make you something i was hoping that she might have cooked it because i'm (laughs) like maybe
2: she'll (laughs) i could get a home cooked meal but i was like it was kind of a reach because i mean it's the it's the housekeeper of a hotel i didn't and then
0: she was like okay i'll do it i'll bring it tomorrow and i was like okay wow you, you figure just in general how many people in this world say they're going to do something and then actually do it like that's, that's rare exactly out. right that's <laughs> exactly
2: right people all the time say come over but they don't mean it
0: no <laughs> no absolutely that that's fantastic and that meal after being on all that fast food that must have made it taste even all that more delicious oh
2: it was it was excellent she made all the fixings and i came back in and the girl at the front desk said uh the lady left, are you Drew Thomas? I said, yeah, she said the lady left some food for you. It was about four dishes she brought from her house.
1: Oh, God with bless With covers her. and everything. Wow,
0: that's, that's amazing.
1: Sweet. Yeah.
0: Now, Drew, at another time in your career, you spent a couple of years touring with Rodney Carrington. What was that like? That was awesome. Now, that was, I was a rock star for about three and a half years. We
2: only played arenas and casinos and theaters and i flew all over the country it was some great times i we were in longview texas one time and i had a great show and this guy comes over people are so genuine in the south he comes over to the merch table and he goes man i want to get that colored fellas tcd and i was like this colored fella right here and he was like "Uh, were you the one that was just on stage i said yeah he said man you you funny let me get one of your cds i said okay and I signed it to the colored fella, <laughs> Drew Thomas, and gave it to him.
1: <laughs> Boy, it's good that you do have a sense of humor and that, that you, you have let to. that roll off of you like that. You have to. You'll
2: be angry. You'll spend too much time being angry and not living. Right. Amen and because that.
1: people have they're well-meaning, they have good hearts, right? They, realize that that's something that maybe they shouldn't say
2: (laughs) it's Longview, texas though (laughs) he he was sincere because he wanted to take me home with him so you gotta you gotta sometimes understand if it's not coming from a place of malice or hate that you don't have to match it with that he thought that that colored fella was funny and he wanted that colored fella cd so i sold it to him
1: Oh, that's sweet. Drew, you are funny. And like I said, in the intro, one of the things that I love about your comedy is you make it look so easy to be simple. Your persona is very understated. You're not all over the place. You're not commenting on the, the you know, the punchlines or whatever. Like, it's just you, you you're so natural. Was that something that just came to you naturally, or did you have to work on, hey, I think I'll do this persona? No,
2: I never thought about it. As a matter of fact, when I started, I had no idea what my style would be like. I started thinking about, because I was watching Chris Rock and Sinbad and, um, you know, Chappelle, Eddie Murphy a lot. So I was like, well, how do you develop your style? How do you know? What you sound like when you're on stage. But I think was key for me was I knew I had to be true to myself. Mm-hmm. So staying to myself, the style just came naturally because that's how I speak. It's very close to my
1: natural speaking cadence. Well, it definitely comes across for sure. And one one more question, kind of along those lines. You've toured and opened for great musical artists shaka khan boys to men just to name a couple and i'm wondering is there a big difference in opening for a musical act as opposed to for another comedian uh not
2: really because the the audiences overlap in terms of likes like the same type of audience that enjoy that type of music or jazz or blues are usually the same type of audience that enjoys comedy you know naturally people like to laugh now the stretch is when you start to do like hip-hop and comedy where you got two different the music doesn't lend to then being calmed down and listening to jokes you know now you want to throw cars around and tear up couches. <laughs> well
0: one thing I, I i have to go back to one thing real quick drew and that's when You know, again, to you, just being yourself, your delivery is just kind of you being you. And uh, Rosie had mentioned before, everything you do is very relatable and you make it look so simple. But the other thing that really fascinates me with your comedy is that you can turn on a dime with your punchlines. And sometimes you're like you, you could just get smacked between the eyes and didn't even see it coming. And all of a sudden you just it's it's like right there but yet so real and so matter of fact. So I'm wondering, are these real life experiences or how much of what you write is actually based on things you've experienced in your life? 98%
2: of it. I mean, you throw a little sugar in on a joke to, to make it a joke, but most of those stories have happened. I've lived it. I've experienced it and, or they're observations from people that I know closely or close to me. So When something strikes me like a point needs to be made, it's easy to write the joke because it just
0: lends itself the real experience. Do you ever bounce your material off of anyone before you add it into a show? Um, Sometimes, but
2: in a loose way. You might throw a point in a conversation, like, what do you think about this? And to see where the reaction might be. But you already know where the joke is so the best way is to just try it on stage
1: I find it the only way you can
2: know to get the reaction from the natural audience
1: you know you say you already know where the joke is well not everybody does I mean would you agree that that's kind of just an innate sensibility that you have or is it something that you had to kind of hone no I
2: would say that because even then I think back to high school and college with joking with friends that's the way that i would even when we joked amongst each other mine would be come from the side or they didn't see it or catch them off guard so i think early on that was already developed that that was the your style a a jab style i kind of look at like boxing so it's it's like jabs
0: right i I think that's a great analogy of your jabs with hooks that's what i was alluding to earlier you just said it a lot better Yeah, it's jabs with
1: hooks. (laughs) How long does it take you, Drew, say, to get a half hour or an hour's worth of material? I've heard from other comedians, you know, they could be inspired and it could come really easily. And sometimes it takes them years to really build that.
2: The first one take years. The first half hour, hour take years because your first 10, 15 minutes after about two, three years, you've totally dropped that. You're starting to find your voice and develop your style. So now you're writing and you're performing this 20, 30 minutes, but you're adding to it all the time. So sometimes you only get to do 20 minutes. So how do I do I do an old 10 and add a new 10? But it doesn't, this 10 doesn't fit this 10. So you have to work it, work. So sometimes the first hour for a comedian, their first special, is usually the best one because they've been doing that set for 15, 20, 25 years before it became a comedy special. So now after that becomes a special, now I'm, you're putting out a special every year or two. You didn't put the same time into that second, third special as you did into that first one. That first one was your
1: baby. That makes perfect that's, sense because yeah. that's true. It does happen. It, it, it's hard to live up to that first special sometimes.
2: Right, because the first one is That's been nurtured and trimmed and fine-tuned, and you've done it in bar, restaurant, comedy club, wedding, college, every situation possible. Now you're noticed, they go, oh, it's time for a special. Yes, you shoot the special, that whole set is done. Now everywhere you go to perform it, the people have seen it in the special. It's been streamed, they're singing along with you like it's a jukebox. And now it's time for the new special, but you only spent a year writing this new special. How good can it be?
0: And and I think you're you're also gonna have people that maybe come out and see you and they're gonna want to see or hear some of your greatest hits, if you will. You know, and it's like that too. Before. So it's a, it's
2: tough to walk the line because now you're like, oh well, this audience never seen me before. So do I do the old set? And then you you're doing the new set, the stuff you like, and then people
0: are like, You didn't do the, the joke I, I paid to see. It's hard it's hard to please everyone sometimes, I guess, but you cannot
2: please everybody. I have no, I, I've come to that conclusion. You cannot please
0: everybody. Well, there's one thing, Drew, I will say, and and this really jumped out at Rosie and I, and that's just how hard you work, how many different things you're involved in. And one of those things is you spend time mentoring and coaching younger comics, and you've just shared like some things that you've learned, and obviously you're sharing it with them. So what inspires you to help those other people in the way that you do? I think I'm a I think
2: being the oldest I'm just a natural big brother leader type, you know. I was a math tutor in high school, math tutor in college. I tutored some of my sisters' friends in high school, so I tutored in college when I went back to get my degree in theater. So I think naturally I'm just a teacher. So mm-hmm. sometimes you just in comedy you come along and you it's like basketball. You see somebody with potential and you go, hey, maybe I could pull that guy to the side and give him a tip or two.
1: Did you really get called to pick up uh, a girlfriend's kid at school after two days? Yes,
2: I did. <laughs> it, happened. it happened when I was selling cars. The phone rang. I pick up the phone. They were like, is this Drew Time?" I said, yes. They said, this is Marbury Elementary. And I'm like, okay. And because we weren't seeing each other that long at the time. and I, But I knew that that's where her daughter daughter went to school. I changed it from daughter to son. I said, yes. She said the lady on the school said, well, I need you to come pick up uh, Jasmine. She had an asthma attack and we can't get in touch with her mother. And I was like, well, how do you get my information? So I went and picked the daughter up, took her home. She was a latchkey kid, had her own key. And then I finally got her mother on the phone and I was like, the school called me to go pick up Jasmine. They said they couldn't get in touch with you oh, I knew that you were responsible, so I put your name on the list, but I didn't get around <laughs> to telling you. So <laughs> she didn't think there was going to be an emergency in the between the time of putting my name on the list and not informing me that my name was on the list, and then there was an emergency.
1: That had to be surreal. How long did that relationship last? Uh, not much longer after that.
2: <laughs> but, that but that really happened, and I'm like, so I, I, I saw that as a joke immediately because I'm like, you can't do that. You can't put people's <laughs> name on it. That means you think of it in a bad situation. Let's go dark. What if I had known my name was on the list and I wasn't a good person? I, I now have authority to go and get your child from school and drive off with them.
1: Uh. Yeah. yeah, especially
0: these days. My God, that—that that is. Yeah,
2: uh, so I don't, I don't understand it. Uh, that's something
0: for single mothers to think about. You can't just put people's name on the list to go get your kids <laughs> from school. Yeah, and and you know, Joe, I want to thank you because I think one of the other things you do in your comedy is you you really provide like you know public service announcements. You know, you it's, just did there. And, right, it's social, you know, it's social commentary on things that's really going on. Yeah, and and even what you know I learned about you know when you date certain types of girls, they might take your leftovers. So if all your food is gotta be careful.
2: (laughs) You gotta you got that's something I learned. I had to I had that I learned that one the hard way. That was spaghetti. That really happened. (laughs) So my buddy in trying to cheer me up, he says, I know what you need. You need a chubby girl. You never dated a chubby girl. Chubby girls are fun. So I went and found a chubby girl, but Nobody told me, chubby girls eat your leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't prepared for that. I don't have extra meals like that. I'm on a budget. All my meals are spoken for. (laughs) She would call me in the middle of the day and be like, I left this morning quietly. I didn't want to make no noise and wake you. And I'm like, yeah, but you took my lunch. And
0: you were going to have that for breakfast when you woke up. I was
2: going to have it for lunch. I, what made me notice was my Tupperware container was missing. And it was one of the bigger Tupperware containers. And then I went to the fridge. I noticed that the Tupperware container was missing first. And I was like, why would you just take an empty Tupperware container? Then when I looked in the spaghetti pot, the whole middle was missing.
1: No, that's just bizarre right there. Just <laughs> You're going to go to someone's house. Take a Tupperware container and yes. then take their food home with you. Fill Not it. even eat it there. <laughs> and take it with you for lunch. <laughs> that is crazy. Drew, what does the future look like for you? What are your hopes for the future? In uh, my hopes are to possibly write on a sitcom
2: or be in a sitcom of my own. But, you know, you could only perform so many places. I could only go to so many cities and so many people can be at that show at that night. But I think my comedy is ready to reach more people, higher levels. So whether that's through writing TV shows or going international, but there's a lot of jokes still left in this big head.
1: (laughs) Well, I I think that's a perfect uh, avenue for you to explore because I I agree with you. I think you are ready. And I think that uh, television could use a good comedy.
2: I think so too. I think I think there's been a a lull for a while, and we've had some good shows. But you know, it's time to bring that old laughter back—that old good gut laughter that we used to when we used to watch sitcoms in the '80s. Mm. No, that,
0: that's a great point. Where you, you had great lineups on Thursday nights, Friday nights, Saturday Thursday, night, Friday, Saturday night. night, yeah. Every every night you had, and you, you make a great point too. And I think this is. Maybe now more than ever, we need laughter, we need joy, and and we want to thank you for doing your part and spreading it. And we agree, it's time to spread it wider and broader across the country and around the world because people could use it. Yeah, we do. We just need healing. I just think a lot of people are, some people are angry and people don't even know what they're angry
2: about. And we're, we're angry against this group and this group. And what are you really angry about? What did that person do to you? that you're so angry. It's not even like, oh, I don't like Bill. No, you're talking, I want to beat Bill in the head until I see white meat. Why? What, what? Where does this hate come from?
1: Right. And comedy is unifying. It can be. Comedy
2: is unifying. Comedy, people come to a, and I say it sometimes on stage, people come to a comedy show that outside of that comedy show would never speak to each other but they just sat in this room together for an hour and a half and laughed at the same things. Right. So that shows you that people are more alike than we think. But you leave the comedy right. show and go right back to hating each group. Well, hopefully yeah. that evolves. Yeah. Only time. It might not be in our lifetime, but maybe a couple more generations it could start to happen.
0: Right. Well, right. you're definitely helping to accelerate it with what you're doing. That's for sure. I'm trying to do my part
1: well Drew, thank you so much we we love talking to you you are just so talented so funny and folks we hope you've enjoyed the show and you'll have to come back and see us again sometime drew i
2: will thank you guys for this
1: platform and thank you guys for having me our pleasure and folks thank you once again for tuning in and we'll see you next week
2: But I'm scared. I'm not afraid to admit it. Marriage is a major decision. How many times in your life do you want to lose half your stuff? (laughs) And I'll share with you what scares me the most. What scares me the most about marriage is the fact that men and women don't even look at marriage the same way. When women talk about marriage, it's a happy occasion. I'm getting married. I got my ring. I got my colors picked out. I got four of my fat friends to stand next to me. (laughs) It's gonna be a beautiful day. No, their dress is ugly. Mine is pretty. (laughs) But it's not the same for the men. When men talk about marriage with our friends, it sounds like something you get diagnosed with. (laughs) Did you hear what happened to Charles? No, what? He's getting married. No! I just seen him last week. When did he find out? She told him yesterday at dinner. Is there anything that we could do for him? No, the invitations already went out. There's nothing we can do.